0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Kelly Halls about restoring your pet's vitality and fresh food feeding. Dr. Halls was born in Melbourne, Australia. She obtained her veterinary science degree from the University of Queensland in Brisbane in 2002. She then went into mixed animal practice in southern Australia for a few years, followed by two years as a locum vet in various parts of the UK. Returning home in 2007, she then worked in a large small animal practice as well as an emergency practice. And in 2015, she founded Benton's Road Veterinary Clinic in Mount Martha, Victoria. Kelly's area of expertise include fresh food feeding for dogs, the use of nutritional and herbal supplements, as well as reduced vaccine and preventative medication loads for pets. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah, for giving me the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, me too. I've been really looking forward to this for since we really booked it in, um, which I think was uh, six weeks ago now. Um, we're going to mainly be talking about your approach to fresh food feeding, Um, nutritional and herbal supplementation um, and your approach to vaccination in your clinic, which may differ from what a lot of uh, conventional vets are are utilising in their vaccination protocols. So I'm really interested to talk to you about that. But before we get into all of the the meat of the episode, I'd love to hear about your background and why you wanted to become a vet and um, how you ended up working where you are today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I think I'm one of those people. When I was a child, I just wanted to be a vet. I don't even remember the first time it dawned on me to, to be a vet. It was just one of those things I always wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I was one of those kids that had heaps of pets as a child um, of all sorts cats, dogs you know rats, mice yeah. know, fish just everything <laughs> um, and really enjoyed it I used to hang about at my local vet clinic a fair bit and um, you know just go in even when I was just a child um, just to see what they were doing and spend time and yeah you know as many children love the whole James Herriot oh, yes. book and, and um, TV series yeah, yeah. and yeah um, yeah, just thought that's what I wanted to do, and I never really um, veered off that path. Oh,
0: that's wonderful, and so you're still still finding it as fulfilling today as you did dream
1: of back then. Yes, I mean obviously back then I didn't actually have any idea what being a vet was <laughs> or meant. Um, so I'm really lucky that now that I am a vet, that it is actually what I enjoy. It's completely different to what I thought it would be, yeah. but I do find it really rewarding. I love it. I love um, the. Relationships and communication that you have with um, the families of these animals.
0: Oh, um, so so nice. for
1: me, yeah, it is, you know, it's my forever career. I won't really be doing anything else, I don't think.
0: That's it. Oh, that's so nice to hear because, you know, I know that there's a lot of challenges in the industry at the moment mm-hmm. um, with mm-hmm. with unhappy vets and, and people sort of leaving practice and um, problems there. So it's really refreshing to hear someone like yourself who just, you know, exudes that love that you just
1: mentioned. So it's um, <laughs> that's great that you found your calling. Yeah, I am one of the lucky ones. And I know there are a lot of challenges that face a lot of us, but I'm not saying I'm immune to those challenges. It's not an easy job. No. Um, But um, yeah, I've I've managed to create for myself a space where I um, enjoy and where I feel happy. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones.
0: Yeah, amazing. And so you work at Benton's Road Vet Clinic. And did you establish that clinic yourself?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I did. My husband and I own the clinic. He okay. he does a lot of the management side of things, and I'm I'm the vet. It started off just myself, um, in about six and a half years ago now. Yeah. Um. So we yeah we started with yeah just from scratch. So no clients, no <laughs> no wow. goodwill, no nothing. Just open the door and let's give it a go. Yeah, um, right. And yeah, we've been really lucky in that. I guess our our approach is what is requested and demanded by so many people. And so our business has continued to grow since then and um, is now quite a thriving business and quite busy.
0: Oh, that's great. And so would you classify yourself as an integrative clinic or are you more a conventional clinic that utilizes some of these alternative therapies?
1: Yeah, I guess it's, um, yes, I do consider us to be an integrative vet clinic, mm-hmm. um, but I guess it's, you know, what. what's your idea of what integrative means? Integrative, in my opinion, is, um, you know, a veterinary setting where we combine the best of conventional veterinary medicine and also adapt and utilize complementary therapies as yeah. well. So I'm one of these people. You you might get from me. I'm quite opinionated in a lot of things. I love that. (laughs) One one of the things I dislike in our profession is the use of the word alternative medicine Mm because it really makes it sound like you're choosing that medicine over conventional medicine just because it's alternative. Yeah. Um, And I think that's really not what, not what most integrative practitioners do. You know, we are still vets. We um, examine and um, you know problem solve and diagnose a problem and then we treat to the best of our ability that problem and that might be using you know most of us use pain relief medication, but then we also take an extra step and say, well, what else can we do to support this patient and what can we do differently to stop the problem coming back again? Yeah, what's causing that that pain, yeah. Yeah, that's right, and then what? That's where the complementary therapies come in, and um, you know, you can do, you sort of got so much more scope to really support that animal. So yeah, yeah, I guess yes, I would call myself an integrative practitioner.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds it. Um, I completely agree with you, and I mm-hmm. just feel like there's, it's a shame really that there's so many um vets out there who haven't had their eyes opened to all of these mm-hmm. wonderful alternative, well, I won't call it alternatives, but as you say, <laughs> alternatives to just the con- conventional approach, um, being complementary um, medicine yeah. and, and other treatment modalities that can just, you know, do wonders.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think we've got to really watch that mindset of a lot of veterinary pro- professionals where they do sort of close their mind to, you know, alternatives and complementary medicine, um, because it is, you know, not what they're used to, but if they sort of open their minds and do a little bit more research and reading around the area, um, then they can find that they can do so much more for their patients. And um, I think that's really important.
0: And so just on a little tangent, where do you recommend, if there was a um, a vet listening who wanted to learn more about um, other approaches and um, perhaps some mm-hmm. of the the more complementary therapies, where do you recommend they go to to learn that? Yeah,
1: well, there's a couple of places. Um, I think If if vets are interested, I do actually um, um, manage a Facebook page for um, integrative practitioners, and it's called natural vet practitioners. Okay. Uh, natural veterinary practitioners, and it's a really collaborative space where we've got a lot of people on there who are experts in their field and just amazing with their knowledge and what they've studied and what they've learned. Um, and then we've got some people that are, you know, oh, I don't know anything about complementary medicine and just you know stick their hand up occasionally and ask a question. So it's a really good place for both sharing knowledge and also learning. Yeah. So that's a, a great place there. Um, but if people want to take the extra step and actually want to learn something, then I can't recommend more the um, the CIVT, yes. the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapists. Therapist. Yep. Um, they've got so many courses on there that, you know, range from just simple short courses and seminars and webinars to, you know, full certificates in, um, you know, in nutrition or herbal medicine or Chinese medicine. Yeah. Um, and I've done a few things through them and I really enjoy their, their, um, their style.
0: Yeah, no, it's wonderful that we've got that. And they're um, uh, purely online. Um, I mm. think, are the courses. So at the moment, obviously, really accessible to everyone yes. internationally. Um, yes. And like you said, some some of the courses are really short and, and, and sort of easy to fit into a busy vet's lifestyle. So I think that they're a wonderful resource that we have mm. in the industry. Mm. You
1: can, yeah. Yes, and you can do it when you've got the space for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can do the little sort of taster things to get an idea of whether this is something that you like. And then if yeah. you do like it, you can go and do one of their true certificates and do a bit more study in it.
0: Okay, and so did you do any of those further courses with the CIVT for Mm -hmm. your work, or have you just really been learning as you go? Um, oh, a bit of, of both. Um, I
1: have done the certificate in natural nutrition through the CIBT. Okay. I have done one of the introductory um, Western herbal medicine courses through oh, yeah, the CIBT, nice. um, and I've also done like a lot of the seminars and, yeah. um, and lectures and, and sort of taster things. Because I, as I said, I really enjoy. Like yeah. I, I would do it all if I if I had the time.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Just enjoy <laughs> the learning. more that you learn yeah. and the
1: more that you know, the more you realise you want to learn. So yeah. Yeah,
0: I feel exactly the same. I'm currently studying. I think it's my tenth year of uni. <laughs> Go on. Back to uni again and studying naturopathy, so ah, um, yes, yeah, fantastic. same as you. Just thirst for knowledge, um, which mm. which I think should should never be squashed. Um, mm, so I agree. even if it does mean you know fitting it in a night and and working on the weekends, but that's how you do it when you love it. Yes. So you've done your course in, um, what did you say it was called, natural?
1: It's a Certificate of Natural Nutrition. Natural Nutrition. The... Okay. Yeah.
0: Yep. So tell us more about that and how has that influenced the way that you um, prescribe diets and nutrition advice in your cases? Um, I'm assuming that's led to your passion for fresh food nutrition.
1: Yeah, it probably actually was the other way around. I I did the certificate in natural nutrition kind of because I wanted to have a certificate behind me saying I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yep. But by the time I did that, I'd actually been practicing this way for quite some time. So it was more that I just wanted to give myself that accreditation. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, sort of going back to where I started, um, when I opened my practice, I really just set out with wanting to offer a practice that, in my in my words, um, gave an option of ethical medicine to mm-hmm. clients and by what that is I, I'd worked for too long in many places where you just follow cookie cutter um, kind of recommendations for patients yeah, so it didn't matter what walked in every dog was meant to be on xyz preventatives and it has to be vaccinated every 12 months and it has to have everything ticking the box according to what the business wanted to sell but it didn't fit in with what you know, like different dogs might have different needs, so different cats yeah. might have different needs, and we weren't really respecting that. So I wanted to offer a practice that um, kind of tailored the approach to each individual pet. And then whilst that was happening, I had young children then, um, and I guess my oldest daughter wasn't the most well daughter with her gastrointestinal system as a young okay. child. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and we sort of got a bit bogged down in the medicine department, in not getting anywhere, um, and so we ended up following a bit more of a naturopathic path to try and get her well um and through that i learned more about nutrition and the importance of things and you know how proteins aggravated the gastrointestinal system and the importance of eating fresh food and your vegetables yeah. and your fruits and yeah. your broad your broad nutrients and um just in the back of my head i said i can't understand how a bag of dry, dry food fits in this, this ethos yeah, um, I feel the know, same how, way. Yeah, you know how does how does that work? It's a super processed diet. It's all yeah. followed by the same recipe. Yeah. Um, you know, it can't possibly be the right thing to do. And from there, I've then done more and more study, um, and more learning, and and just started. You know, I, I basically um, closed down my relationship with my dry food supplier, and they just said, "Look, we're not going to supply you anymore because you're not selling anything." I went, yeah. yeah, that's probably best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they packed up their merchandising stands and left, and um and then I just went on to selling fresh food and studying that more and really starting to treat my patients as they came in with chronic complaints. Um, and then it really took off because actually all my patients got better. Yeah, and wow, I stopped just through seeing- diet changes alone? Well, not not always alone, yeah. um, but certainly in combination. And yeah. so, you know, I then started getting a lot of people said, oh, I've heard about you. You know, my dog's had itchy skin for years. Yeah. I've been on, you know, antibiotics and prednisolone and all the rest of it for years. What can you do? And it's like, oh, I don't know. Let's see. Um, let's try this. And then they would come back and say, oh, my God, I'm off the prednisolone and my dog's not itchy. Oh, how like, oh, wonderful. Okay, well, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the more I've had that kind of experience, and I tell you, I've got <coughs> ages of it um the more i just realize oh my gosh we're not doing the right thing by our dogs by sticking to this you know real um you know formulated diet Sort of that's in this, yeah mm.
0: yeah and so if a you know if an itchy dog walked in the door would you mm. have a typical recipe that you would provide the pet parent um to then make at home or do you have certain brands and we don't have to mention the brands but do you have certain sort of commercial products that you like that you have stocked or a bit of both and do you take an individual approach to each I mean I'm sure that you do but in do you have like a sort of classic recipe for your itchy dog that you try as your first port of call
1: yeah look I certainly do and I guess one of the first things that I always do is really talk to the owners of that dog about what they want and what they think they can maintain and achieve and can be sustainable cost wise as well yeah Yeah, I mean, if somebody comes in and they're really used to feeding dry food and they don't really want to go to any effort, if I then say, look, you've got to follow this home-cooked recipe, um, you know, that's all you can do, I'm not going to get compliance the dog's not going to get that long term and it's just not going to work so certainly talking to the people and saying hey you know what what do you want what do you want to feed your dog Um, and sometimes they've never considered it so they don't yet know but sometimes they're like oh i can't do home prepared food it's just not going to work and then other people come to me and that's all i want to do so i guess if somebody comes and they're used to feeding dry food and they don't really want to change then i go okay can i just get you to add my four favorite toppers to your dry food diet Mm -hmm. so can you add for me every day can you add some mixed um, vegetables and salads Mm-hmm. um and so it doesn't have to be heaps, just your leftovers from your table finally chop it up and mix it through the dry food can you add a bit of fresh natural yogurt or kefir can you add the odd egg and can you add the odd um like canned oily fish like mm-hmm. your, you know tuna salmon mackerel sardines yep. um but most people go oh yeah I can manage that it's like okay go go do that um and then even even that alone is going to greatly improve that nutritional profile for yeah, that dog definitely. yeah definitely other than that i say you know if you know, have you thought about feeding your dog a different way? I introduce the concept of fresh food, and then I start talking about the commercial, the commercially available options of food that are out there that are better than dry food. So yeah. there are a lot of options now that you can buy that are, are chilled. So they you yep. know they're cooked diets that are chilled. You can buy obviously raw diets that are frozen. Um, or chilled, you can buy dehydrated, freeze dried, air dried raw diets. Yep. Um, so there are a lot of options these days of commercially available fresh food diets in different formulations, and often one of those is the right thing for that person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, we we can talk about home prepared diets and. Um, And again, this is really easy. It doesn't have to be a difficult recipe you have to follow. There are some easy supplements, you know, a vitamin and mineral supplement. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, a couple that I love. And of course, a fish oil supplement is always going to be useful to any dog with an itchy skin problem.
0: Yeah, of course. Um,
1: And so I can help people balance a home prepared diet or we can just add supplements to, you know, a commercial diet um, and tailor that their way. But yeah, certainly like there's there's, um, a food-based vitamin and mineral supplement plus a fish oil supplement is going to just really benefit most dogs as well as getting some vegetables into them.
0: Yeah, of course. And do you have a, a stance for or against
1: raw versus lightly cooked versus cooked fresh food yeah. again I'm not I'm, there's no hard line um, I think a lot of dogs do really well on raw but there's also a, a quite a large subset of dogs that don't do well on raw and we have to respect that mm-hmm. um, I think certainly as dogs age they do less well on raw and so yeah. they do much better on a cooked diet
2: yeah.
1: um, there are obviously some concerns health concerns with feeding a raw diet and so people need to be mindful of those and be yeah. accepting of the small risks and do it well. Yep. Um, you know, so that the the average vet doesn't get too upset by what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but we can feed raw food really well and there's a lot of dogs that do brilliantly on it, yep. um, but some dogs do like cooked food. Um, again, I tailor my my recommendations based on what the owners want. I, I've i attracted all those people in the veterinary world that, you know, that vets hate. They're like, I'm going to feed raw food and that's just what I'm going to do. It's like, that's <laughs> great. Let's help you do it really, really well.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, so it is really guided by what the owner wants to feed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so when you mentioned that older dogs don't seem to do so well, is that because their mm-hmm. digestive strength just isn't there so they need something that's lightly cooked sort of partially already digested for them already? Yeah, that's,
1: yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. They're just less less able to digest food. I mean, if you think about lightly cooked meat, it is actually one step um, towards that digestion. It is a little yeah. bit easier to digest, which is why yeah. humans evolved on cooked meat. Um, I think one of my vets is a, actually a couple of my vets are, are much more trained than me in traditional Chinese medicine. And they say that the, the Chinese medicine pattern of dogs changes as they age. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the older dogs are much more fitted to a, a, um, a warming diet and and the, um, and the cooked foods compared to a young diet with a really strong, you know, vital force or, um, you know, that Um, Abilities to digest food.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so do you, um, you said that there's a couple of vets who are sort of trained in that area, but do you Mm -hmm. utilise Chinese herbal medicine in your cases as well?
1: Yeah, all the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do utilise Chinese medicine when I know that it's a simple fix. Mm -hmm. Um, So the classic one will be, you know, kidney disease in dogs and cats has got a a pretty specific Chinese medicine formula um, that I'm happy in prescribing. Um, And there are also some other ones which I'm happy in, but if it's a little bit more involved, then I'll refer my my patients to those practitioners that are, um, you know, they're accredited in Chinese medicine and a bit better at it than I am.
0: Yeah, for sure. And are they practising acupuncture as well or just the yeah. Chinese medicine?
1: Yeah, they're both. Um, one of them practises more just acupuncture and one yep. of them practises acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine and Western herbal medicine and um, trigger point therapy as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like you've got a great team there.
1: <laughs> I do have a really wonderful team, actually. I have a number of vets around me and they all bring something a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and so it's really great, actually, to bring those minds together together um and to you know collaborate with each other and say okay what else can we do for this particular patient so we do have a meeting actually i've got to go later this afternoon on a tuesday where we have a vets meeting and we sort of bring in all our minds to help with those trickier cases
0: oh that sounds really nice gosh i'd love to be a fly on the wall i bet you learn (laughs) so much Mm. So which particular cases do you think most benefit from a change, um, say say they're sort of on a, you know, a mainly dry food diet? Um, we mentioned itchy dogs and itchy cats and sort of skin cases, but... Which other ones walk in the door and you just sort of think that they're crying out for some more nutrition typically?
1: Mm, mm. Uh, well, first of all, every single animal deserves good nutrition. So yeah, <laughs> there's not a, there course. is not a, um, a client that visits me that doesn't get a bit of a chat about changing to a fresh food diet. Yep. Um, but I think the ones that classically improve, are the three groups would be your chronic skin dog, yep. your chronic gastrointestinal dog, yep. and then your senior patient as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: yep. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And what about puppies and kittens? Do you, because I know that their nutritional needs, um, you know, are a little more specific. What's your approach to them starting on a fresh food diet if someone wanted to do, you know, a homemade diet or a commercial diet with them?
1: Yeah, Are you comfortable yeah. with that? Um, I guess we we know the thing about puppies is that up until six months of age, they can't regulate their calcium absorption, mm. so they're going to absorb however much calcium is given to them. Yeah, and they don't have the same homeostasis mechanism as an adult dog, and so we have to pay a lot of attention to giving to getting it right. Yeah. Um, now, in saying that, it's actually not that tricky. It's not rocket science. If you think about all the puppies that survive in the world without the commercial dry food diets, they actually can do quite well. What we need to avoid doing is overfeeding them so that they don't get heavy. Yep. We need to, with the giant larger breed dogs, we need to avoid giving them way too much calcium than what we need yep. um, because there have been some studies showing that that can affect their joint health long term. Um, So I think it is more important for a growing puppy that they are on a balanced diet. And so if it depends on the person coming to me. If they're quite knowledgeable and know what they're doing, then I'm happy to help them do a balanced fresh food diet because I know that puppy will do better. But if they don't really know what they're doing, then I am going to recommend a commercially balanced diet over a home-prepared diet. Just so we know that dog is getting the right sort of balance without mucking it up too much in that early phase of growth. And then later on we can have a bit more flexibility and and, um, and go back to a home-prepared diet if that's what the client really wants. But, yeah, I usually direct them to one of the really good, just a, a fresh food diet that you can buy off the shelf themselves.
0: That's formulated for puppies.
1: Yeah, but we've got yeah. to remember that actually puppy formulas are not different from adult formulas. Their requirements for energy are higher, mm-hmm. um, but they would eat more food per kilo of body weight than the same adult would. You know, if you do think, if you thought about dogs growing up in the wild, they don't eat different food. Mum brings back the same animal. Yeah, that's Just true. the puppies would eat more of it per kilo than the adult would.
0: Yeah. So they get higher you, protein. That's why there. you find a
1: lot of the commercially available fresh food diets actually don't have puppy and adult formulations right. they're, they're okay. appropriate for all life stages
0: oh, okay um, I didn't know that
1: no it's only when you look down into things like the commercial dry food diets that are for maintenance and adults they, they're actually so nutrient devoid that they don't support growth and development and so yeah. that's why they need to have a different formulation for puppies is because they're in right. my opinion the diets are just not you know, they're not adequate.
0: So really um, the adults should be staying on the puppy diet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, they always
1: need to eat less of it. Um, yeah. And obesity is a massive issue. But, yeah, yeah it's um, the whole, you know, puppies need puppy food and adults need adult food is not quite true.
0: Yeah right okay and do you take the same approach to cats as well? Um, I know that they've got quite sort of specific requirements and they're a little bit more finicky. Are you finding yeah, that they respond? Yeah, cats the can same? be really
1: challenging, and I've got a really challenging cat myself who's really stubborn. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, I can't. I've, I adopted her as a ten-year-old, and I'm really battling ah, okay. to get her yeah. to eat what I think would be best. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we do have that challenge, but um, you know, cats cats are different to dogs in that they are obligate carnivores and much yeah. more of that you know carnivorous nature and so we need to respect that Um, And so I would love all cats to be started on a raw food diet so that they're used to it. Um, But once they're an adult and they're on a dry food diet, it's so challenging to get them off it. It it often wins out over willpower.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mm. They're so so challenging, aren't they, in that way when they're so ingrained?
1: Bless Um, them.
0: (laughs) Bless them. So, Kelly, when you're formulating a diet, say, uh, you know, a purely homemade diet, you said you mentioned that you um, tend to put a a mineral and vitamin supplement in there and some Mm -hmm. fish oil and things. Do you use a, um, like a computer program to balance the diet or do you have, um, a way, did you, in your course, did you sort of have like a balancing, um, you know, spreadsheet that you use or is it really just intuitive now that you sort of done it so many times?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of both um, Mm -hmm. and it depends, again, what the people want. But, yes, I do use some um, formulating software. I use the Animal Diet Formulator, um, which is a software program that balances diets.
2: Yeah, perfect. Um, And so
1: I use that one quite a lot, particularly when I'm – producing diets for specific health conditions like if i'm doing a a a diet for a kidney disease um, pet then i want to adapt certain things about that diet in comparison to the usual everyday. yeah Um, and so i need to make sure if i am reducing protein that we're still giving the right sort of proteins and that it's balanced i'm addressing all the amino acid requirements so yeah i do use the software for those if it's just the everyday you know healthy dogs then i'm much more happy just to say these are your proportions and these what you need to add and rotate through these ingredients to make sure you're getting variety and you'll be good
0: yeah. yeah. So, what would be a, um, say, you had a sort of a healthy adult dog that didn't really have any health conditions, but someone wanted to switch to a, a homemade diet? What would be mm. like a, a typical meal and what would it include? What are your sort of favourite ingredients that you would recommend? Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. So, I recommend a lot of variety. So, don't just stick to one type of meat, mm. you know, rotate through different sorts of meats. And the same with your vegetables. Don't just feed, you know, carrot peas and. Cauliflower, you've got to rotate the differences, um, but it will it will usually you know it um, it will have a proportion of a good quality meat and rotating through different sorts. It will have a um, a carbohydrate source of some sort. Um, you know, dogs are um, omnivorous carnivores, mm-hmm. so they do have um, a lot of ability to digest and utilise nutrients from plant matter. Um, so I'll bring in some carbohydrate, and it might be something as simple as cooked rice or mm-hmm. soaked oats, or it might be sweet potato and pumpkin. Yeah. Um, as, as a, a, a basic carbohydrate, it just doesn't need to be a large amount. So yep. 20% of the diet as a carbohydrate would be, you know, heaps. Okay. Um, and then some vegetables. So as many different sorts of green leafy vegetables as you can. So often I'll ask if people have got a, a herb or a veggie garden, and then they've always got, you know, the outside leaves or the half, snail-eaten leaves yep. or the bits, you know, that they wouldn't eat themselves or, you know, the stump of the zucchini that you cut off yeah. or um, your cucumber. And I just say, look, finally chop those up as though you were chopping up herbs to put in a cooking dish yep. and then pop a dollop of yogurt on top of that and that's a great way of getting your veggies in without spending a lot on buying things for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like compost bin. <laughs> a little <laughs> the dog bit, bowl. Yes. Yeah. yes. And do you yeah, finding so, that yeah. the dogs, um, like, I know that a Labrador would probably eat anything, but are you finding mm-hmm. that sort of fussier dogs are happy to eat vegetables like that?
1: Mostly they are, particularly if you mix it with a bit of yogurt so they can't mm. pick them out. Yeah. Um or mix it through minced meat um, yeah I, I think that they are certainly as they get used to it they are sometimes you might have the odd one that um, you know starts off going oh I don't like to eat my greens but I'm the same issue with my children so <laughs> yeah. it's not different <laughs> um, so I usually suggest just start off with a little bit at a time um, yep. get them used to it and then increase the proportion within the diet I think that you know the green leafy vegetable matter in the digestive tract is really important um, not just for the dog but for the gut health yeah um, definitely. So you've got to get that in and I, I do think veggies know. Know, our best bed every single day. That should be
0: the the foundation, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. what's And then of, the
1: oh, sorry, I was just gonna say the yeah. other thing I do usually recommend for fresh food diets is is some raw bones for them as well. Yeah so I think okay. it's important yep. for their dental health and for the calcium and phosphorus that they get from the, you know, the minerals from the bones. Um, yep. and also the psychological health that you get from chewing on a bone is important as well. So I do usually bring in raw bones.
0: Okay. And what sort of bones do you recommend? Because I know this is always
1: controversial. It's controversial. I know it is. Yeah. And I, you know, and you can't, You can't avoid that. The controversy is there because there are real health risks from eating Mm. bones, and Mm -hmm. so we need to respect that. Um, I love raw chicken frames Mm -hmm. because they're so easily digestible. They're so um, full of cartilage, which is a great joint supplement. Um, They're really soft, so dogs will use a lot of their teeth instead of just concentrating on the the upper carnassials. They'll use their whole mouth to eat them. Um, and they're usually, as I said, they're really easy to digest, so you don't get them hanging around for ages and ages.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. It's got to be fresh. It is chicken, and it's raw chicken, so we've got to reduce the bacterial load by making sure it is fresh. Yeah. Um. The other bones I like are things like lamb's necks and brisket bones. I yeah. avoid. Um. Yeah. I do avoid feeding marrow bones and lamb shanks because I just yeah. think the density of the weight bearing bones is too much, and I do see them break teeth. Yeah. Um, so I don't like those ones, and I don't like deer antlers for the same reason.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, that's really good because um, I've asked this question a few times, and I sometimes get a bit of a variable response. So it's always good to get everyone's <laughs> opinion. And um, I, I, I can um, absolutely agree with with your recommendations, and they make total sense. So yeah, when yes. <clears throat> when people are sourcing, obviously you're not cooking a bone, but um, if they are feeding raw meat and they're choosing to feed a raw food diet. Do you recommend they just get human grade meat from the butcher or from the supermarket, like just the same as they would themselves and then feeding it within a couple of days um, or freezing it? Uh, what, how do you recommend they sort of handle that and store it?
1: Yeah, I think the hygiene um issues are really, really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of things. I do always recommend that people do buy their meat from the supermarket or the butcher that is human grade. Yeah. Um and you may be aware of, you know, the Victorian issue we've had recently where pet meat was um had some contamination with a toxin um and has actually resulted in the death of a number of dogs, which has oh, been really devastating. I haven't even heard of that, no. Yeah, it was really, really sad. What what ended up happening, unfortunately, is that horse meat somehow from the Northern Territory mm-hmm. made its way into pet meat that might have been labelled as beef or kangaroo. Um, and unfortunately, those horses had been grazing on a pasture in the Northern Territory that's got a species in it that causes spice and toxicity, oh, no. um, which dogs are really sensitive to. Interesting that in the Northern Territory you can't sell horse meat for dog food because of this problem, but somehow it ended up down here where we're not familiar with it, yeah. and so this has been the result. So it's been really devastating.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. Thankfully, none of my clients have been affected. I think because a lot of them do buy um food from the supermarket instead yeah. of um you know those raw pet stores. Yeah. Uh, raw pet meat um that's packaged up. So. Um, we've been safe so far which is great but yeah. yes one of the you know it's really important to buy human grade meat if you're not gonna it was not good enough for you to eat I wouldn't feed it to your dog yeah um there can be the risk of some pathogens in raw meat and this can't be ignored either we've got both bacterial pathogens on raw yeah. meat and you can have some parasites as well if you were giving game meat or hunted yeah. meat to your dogs yeah um, so if it's game meat, you must freeze that meat for two weeks before feeding it to reduce the chance of getting any transmission. Mm-hmm. Any of your your meat must be fresh. You know, you have got to use really good handling techniques and put meat in the freezer straight away. You know, defrosted in the fridge, all the same sort of things that you would yep. use for yourself. Exactly you know, follow the, the same things. Don't leave raw meat out on the back balcony on a hot day for <laughs> days on end. <laughs>
0: um, just be
1: sensible. Wash your hands. You know, yeah. we're all good at that these days. Use different yeah. utensils and chopping boards for raw meat yep. versus your fruit and veg yeah um so just the common sense kind yeah. of approach
0: yeah gone are the days where you think oh this chicken smells a bit bad i'll give it to the
1: dog <laughs> yeah that's right so, yeah that's fine you may as well book your vet visit now yeah i know, I <laughs> know. Yeah.
0: yeah oh that's a, that's a really nice overview and actually so many questions that i had personally that um that you've answered so thank you so much Good. um now just changing topics slightly so I know that your vet clinic, Bentons Road Vet Clinic, um also focuses quite a lot on sort of minimizing unnecessary medications such as, mm-hmm. you know, um sort of paras parasiticides, vaccinations and things like that. And you, you tend to focus on teeter testing and um sort of tailoring your approach to each patient. So I'd love to talk more about this because I don't think we've really ever talked about this on the podcast before. What, uh, what is your approach to this um, and what does your vaccination protocol sort of look like at, at your clinic?
1: Yeah, yeah, and again, this is this is something that I think is really really important. A lot of vets are in the process. That we've got to get every animal in for their annual vaccination. We need to make sure they yeah. you know, they don't ever get a worm, that I ever get a flea, that I never get heartworm. So we've got to give them everything and make sure they're all safe. But we forget about the accumulation of these toxins and medications within the dog system, mm-hmm. and we also forget about the environmental contamination of, of things like the parasite preventative medications, which is becoming more and more of a problem. Um, And I think we need to understand the relationship between the drugs that we put on our dog and the health of our um, world bee population. So if you're anything like me and like food, bees should be really important to you. Um, Bees are under a lot of stress at the moment because of environmental contamination with chemicals. And one of the biggest ones is the metachloprid class of, um, you know, agricultural uh, pesticides well, these are one of the biggest things we're putting on as a spot on on our dogs yeah. and cats every month, Yeah, you know. Oh. so And then our dogs and cats are running around the backyard shedding off these chemicals and we're wondering why we're not getting our good veggie crops every year um, yeah. because we don't have any bees. So it's really important. Um, the other thing is that do our modern dogs and cats need to be prevented against these every single month? Mm. My opinion is no. Now, part of the reason my opinion is no is that I have the benefit of living and working in, you know, Victoria where we just don't have a lot of the parasites that a lot of my colleagues in northern states face. So we don't have any paralysis ticks here. Um, We don't have heartworm. Um, We have fleas, obviously, and we can get intestinal worms. Um, But my approach is to, instead of blanketly preventing the possibility of all of these things, is looking at the risk of every individual animal and incorporating either a balanced approach to, Preventatives, or using surveillance much more. Yeah. So if you look at like heartworm in our area, we don't have heartworm, and there was a study that was published in the AVJ in 2019 that looked at heartworm in South Australia and, and found a zero percent prevalence and incidence. Wow.
2: Yeah.
1: Which you know they're quite close to Victoria, so we know that heartworm is quite low here. So instead of recommending all of these medications, I will recommend that animals have an annual heartworm blood test each year. Okay. Yep. And so what that means is that, number one, the client saves a lot of money in the, the cost of the test is less than the cost of the drug, yep. but the dog is not getting that medication that they don't need, and then I'm actually collecting a whole heap of data about the lack of heartworm in you know yeah. the Melbourne area. Yeah. So I think that's a much better approach. The same with intestinal worming. You know, should should you know, little fluffy who lives on little old Mrs Jones's knee, you know, all its life and yeah. never contacts another dog and is only fed, you know, either a home cooked diet or, um, you know, dry food, are they at the same risk of intestinal worms as the farm dog or the one that gets fed, you know, venison that's hunted, you know, yeah. in the range? yeah. I don't think we should be approaching them the same way. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, let's look at that and maybe just treat the problems where this pet might be at risk. Mm. But also let's use surveillance a lot more. So, mm. you know, flea medication is really effective and there's no excuse any animal should have fleas. However, a little, you know, fluffy on Mrs Jones's knee is going to be pretty low risk for getting fleas. Mm. So if we can teach Mrs Jones to just do a weekly check for any evidence of fleas or itch um, and mm-hmm. come to us if they've got a problem and then treat if we have a problem then we find we don't need to use these medications nearly as much. Mm,
0: Yeah. And if, you know, um, we know that most of the flea burden is in the house. So if you're treating your house um, if needed, but, you know, really if you're keeping your house clean and hygienic and vacuuming regularly Mm. and washing bedding and hanging it in the sun and all of those preventative measures, then you're hoping that you're not going to have fleas introduced unless you've got sort of, I don't know, wild animals coming in and (laughs) dropping them in there or or
1: visiting dogs. Um, Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, of course, every dog is at risk of getting fleas if they do go to a dog park or go where other dogs are. So we do need to keep being vigilant and keep looking for the problem. Um, But if they don't have a flea burden, then what is the point of putting a flea medication on them? Yeah, particularly because fleas,
0: you know, I mean... It's d- different if you're in a, um, a high tick. And I, I when I worked in practice, I worked um, in a very high paralysis tick area. So yep. that's a life and death situation. Oh, and if, you, if you're going to
1: assess the risk of a tick paralysis versus the risk of, you know, illness. health from the medication, the tick wins out every day. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah exactly. So yep. I'm thinking like for, for, you know, for animals in, in those environments, then you would absolutely be using a tick preventative during the tick season. But the risk of having a small flea burden that you sort of catch a week or two later is very minimal unless it's a tiny little weak kitten that has a huge burden and is, you know, becoming anemic. It's, um, that the the, you know, the health risk is really sort of discomfort to the animal, um, which can be quickly managed. Teaching
1: teaching owners how they can be looking at their dogs and cats and looking for these problems and assessing their health every day is really important too. Yeah. Yeah, and giving them some control and responsibility over it. And most people, you know, most people are really good at being educated and know where to look and what they're looking for.
0: Yeah. And so are you doing regular fecal egg counts as well? Um, yeah, like fecal we yeah, we do. We, I,
1: I tend to send them off to the lab because they're a bit stinky. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yes, we do do um, frequent fecal egg counts looking for the presence of worming. Um, yeah. Obviously, I attract a lot of clients who really want the minimalist approach. Yeah, t- and so they're course, quite happy yeah. to do all of the surveillance so that they don't have to give their dog drugs. Yeah.
0: Yep. So, how often are you recommending? You said that annual heartworm and the annual heartworm blood test. Are you sending that to a lab too? Are you doing an in-house? No, that's just an
1: in-house test. So, just an instant answer. Um, Yeah. And the fecal egg count would be dependent on the dog again. You know, if it's a game. Well, if it's a game-fed dog and they're being fed raw liver from game, I am actually going to recommend that they get a tapeworm quite frequently. Yeah. Because we can't have hydatids you know, becoming a problem. Yeah. But if they're the everyday dog that's just fed, you know, cooked food or commercial food then you know we might just do a fecal egg count maybe once
0: a year. Okay, only once a year. And is there any particular time of year that you prefer to do it? No. No, okay. Cuz I know with horses um I've got horses and we always prefer to do a fecal egg count rather than worm and it's and it's mm. you know as much about the reducing their exposure to to unnecessary drugs but also the huge amount of resistance that there is in mm. in um in worms in horses. But I know that there's particular times of year that is recommended to do them in horses, um, depending on what sort of worms are prevalent that time of year. So so that's good to yeah, know. So really yeah. your annual check then becomes your annual surveillance check where you're checking your, for your heartworm and you're doing your faecal egg count. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. yeah, So the annual
1: health exam is really where we do the whole health assessment of that pet. And so we'll often be doing, you know, screening blood tests. We'll be doing the heartworm test. Um, we'll be obviously looking for fleas as well. We might do the faecal egg count then. Um, so we do everything that we can to try and make sure this animal is well. Uh, doesn't just doesn't necessarily mean vaccinating them or giving them medication.
0: Yes. So on to vaccinations. Yeah. So obviously, you know, anyone that, that obtains a puppy or a kitten these days from a reputable breeder or... A pet store or most avenues mm. would um, it would have its first vaccination, and then yep. I would assume that we would do the course, um, the sort of puppy or kitten course, and then after that is that when you go to doing teeters?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So our our standard puppy and kitten schedule, I guess, would be the same as most vets. Yep. We do give the C five vaccination at the twelve weeks of age. Yeah. Um, when they come back in at the four months of age, we then give a we give you the three the three yearly labelled um c3 or c4 booster um the thing that we then do different is that we teeter test every animal at six months of age and the reason that we do that is we want to catch those couple of dogs that might have either delayed maternal antibody and haven't responded to their puppy course right or we want to find those couple of dogs that might be non-responders and so aren't going to respond to any vaccination and so if we catch them then we obviously revaccinate them but then we want to um document that they have had an antibody response to these vaccines. Yeah. So most dogs and cats have a positive antibody test at six months of age and we do that as routine. Yep. Um, and then because we've used the three-year labelled vaccine at four months and we've documented that they've got a um, an adult immune response to that vaccine, we could then go three years before we have to worry about retesting. Right. And then we use our antibody test on an ongoing basis to um, monitor when we might need to give another vaccination.
0: And is that fairly... Um easy to do these days, an antibody test?
1: Yeah, we run just a test in-house. So oh, in-house. we just take a tiny sample and literally we we just take a tiny blood sample from dogs, usually just with the owners holding them in the consult room. It's really not difficult for them. Um, and then my nurses run the test and we call the owners back with the results that day. So it's yeah. not expensive. It's not difficult. Um, and yeah, we really, really, really like the information that we get from it and the ability that it gives us to not over-vaccinate animals.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And so um, with your six-month, so you're doing 12-week, 16-week, you're doing the three-year C3 or C4, then you're yep. doing a teeter test at six months. Yep. Where do you stand on timing of desexing? Does that usually yeah. happen at that time? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is another kind yeah, there's there's of worms. Worm. <laughs> yep. Sorry. Um,
1: so we will often do that TETA test if the animal is in for desexing at about six months of age, yep. and we are happy to desex from six months of age, yep. however um, – I think that the literature is now changing in whether that's actually the right thing for the dog. So generally speaking, we're happy to desex at that age if it's a small animal, but if it's a larger dog, then we do recommend waiting until they have reached maturity mm-hmm. um, because there's beginning to be a lot more literature to the, to support that early age desexing can um, predispose dogs a bit more to cruciate ligament disease, which is just debilitating. Yeah,
0: okay, yep. Okay. Yeah, so, so what do you sort of consider as a, a
1: small dog, like under 10 kilos?
0: Yeah, I guess yep. so. Yeah, yep. um,
1: most most of the little oodles that we get these yeah. days would yep. fit into that category. Yeah, yep. but if it's going to be more, you know, um, you know, fifteen twenty kilo dogs, then we will wait until they reach their both their skeletal maturity for their joint health, but then I think also their social maturity for their mm. ongoing behaviour is useful as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. what is that? So sort it, of nine to twelve months. Oh, it depends on the breed, of yeah, course. of course. You right. know, so yeah, yeah. Um, smaller breeds mature um, earlier than the larger yeah. breeds. Um, it depends also a bit about the owners as well because you know if you've got a female dog and then you talk to them about letting them have a season or two in the home, some people might be horrified Freak by out. that yeah. um, and just couldn't manage. So it's like, okay, that's fine. Let's just do it at this time, which will be probably before the first season, and and get it done. Yeah. Um. But yeah, in an ideal world, I would wait until after the first season in a female and wait till about twelve months for a larger dog and even a lot longer if they are a you know a giant breed dog.
0: Giant dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh. So it sounds like there's um you know for for a young healthy animal they're really the owners are not going to be having to do very much at all with them other than feed them such a fantastic diet as recommended by you. But in terms of coming in sort of once a year to get those tests, they're not having to really remember to do, you know, their monthly preventatives and, and, you know, tablets and spot ons and things like that. So I can I can imagine how attractive something like this would be to, to people who are open to that. Obviously you've got a, a certain set of clients who are very open to that, um, but I can imagine that there would be some naysayers out there.
1: Um, oh yeah, look, are, there are, and, and obviously, you know, we do deliver a, a certain flavour of veterinary medicine, and that yeah. is not for everybody. And I understand and respect that. Um, but for those people that do want this approach, you know, they're, they're crying out for it. We actually can't keep up with the demand for our services. Yeah, you know, I bet. And the the surprise that I have every day when people tell me they've travelled ninety minutes to drive to me. Uh, so um, it's very flattering. It's, it is incredibly flattering, yeah. but it's also a little bit sad that they can't find that at any other vet think yeah, How many is. clinics did they pass on their way to a house? Yeah, I
2: know. You know.
1: There's a lot. And and they're so appreciative that they come and that they can have this approach and that we yeah. listen to them and um, yeah. and tailor our approach to, to what they want. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a real message in that. I was going to talk about that at the end, but I think there's a real message in that for the veterinary profession about Maybe adapting the way that we are a bit um, yeah. so that we can address these people's needs.
0: Yeah, well, particularly because, you know, more and more so these days, um, someone's pet is, is, a, is mm-hmm. their child in a way. Like it is really su- such a part of their family, which differs At- from, you know, 10, 20 years ago, even and longer. Absolutely. So, yeah, of course, absolutely. they're wanting the to pet- treat them that way, they're treating them as they would their own child.
1: That's exactly right. The pet has absolutely elevated in value Mm. from being a possession to being a member of the family. Yeah. And so many more people are much more health conscious themselves. Yeah. And so they understand the the realities of what they're eating and putting the right products into their body and they look at their animal and they just don't want to – you know feed in a different philosophy. Yeah. So this is right. this is exactly what they want. And not only that, but these people will pay for this. You know, these these clients are those dedicated educated owners that want the best, happy to pay for the service. Um, and the worst thing that we can do as a veterinary profession is to say no, you're wrong. You've got to do it our way. Because yeah. what that does is that makes that person take that animal away from the veterinary profession, and then they might go and see a human naturopath or a homeopath or a chiropractor for help with their dog. Mm. And their dog doesn't get the benefits of veterinary medicine and you know examination and mm. um, you know the the proper health exams. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we maybe as a profession be a bit more open minded um, yeah. and listen to what the demand for our services is and the way the direction is going. Um, yeah, and, and I yeah, think we can offer this a bit more.
0: I think allowing the pet parent to be an advocate for their pet mm-hmm. as well, which, you know, doesn't typically, I mean, it's hard enough being an advocate for yourself or for your child these days um, with some doctors. Um, so so I've found anyway in the past, mm-hmm. not so much with integrative doctors or naturopaths because you're very much part of the sort of treatment team, um, mm. but I would imagine that more and more your particularly your clients who are obviously so engaged with this approach, and I can see why they mm. would they would absolutely you know they'd be doing their own research and they would be really mm. educated like you said, and they would want to be you know a hundred percent part of the treatment plan and and the you know the wellness plan of their animal and of course you know if it, if someone was to say, oh well actually." you know turn um i'm not going to do this for you i don't believe in it you're going to mm-hmm. have to go some, find someone else it's really um sort of diminishing that that desire really to is. you know to be a health advocate for their pets that's it's really sad that some people will be exposed
1: to that yeah, it is, and it, it does make me a bit upset. Um, yeah. And you're right, people are way more educated these days, yeah. and Dr Google is way more educated, and so people <laughs> are coming in with really good information. Yeah. We used to kind of sit on our pedestal and say, well, we've got the degree, you don't know what you're talking about, yeah. um, and therefore you just need to follow our rules because we say. Yeah. But that's not the case. People people actually educate me all the time. They say, look, I've found this you know, research, and I've been looking at this. Like, Oh, I'm not familiar with that. I'm now going to go and learn yeah. about it. So people... You know, they really are educated, and they want to feel in control in the decisions made about their fur babies. Yeah, um, and you're right; that's exactly what they want. They want to be an advocate in the health of their pet. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. let's embrace it because these people are. You know, they're the clients that we want. You know, their their yeah. compliance is awesome. You know, their research is awesome. They they're very very dedicated people.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, for, from a vet's point of view, to sort of lose the ego a bit and yes, <laughs> and be open to to not knowing everything and be open to someone coming in and saying, well, actually, I don't agree and I want to try this because they might have taken three times the amount of time that you have available to read about this one particular treatment option or condition or ingredient and, like, that's where you learn. I think that that's that's a difficult thing for, for a lot of health professionals, I would say, would be to be open to learning from their clients.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's very easy for us to say, you know, we are the learned professional. We've got it. Um, but I think, you know, I've been a vet now for nearly 20 years. And I think the more I learn, the more I realize that there's so much I don't know. So much more, more to know. More, yeah. yeah, there's so much more to learn. So yeah, if some of our clients can help us in that, fantastic. Take yeah. on board. Save yeah. some
0: time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, well, that's great. I, I've certainly learned a lot from just hearing you, Um, you know, your approach to preventative health. And I completely, 100% agree with everything that you're saying. It just makes so much sense. That's right. I know that we're sort of getting close to time, but something I just wanted to talk about before we finish up would be when it comes to managing the psychological well-being of a pet mm. um, what is your approach to that and how can that be best managed sort of in the clinic but also in the home environment and in their, their life as a whole
1: oh goodness me that again, that's a, a massive topic to try and answer in a short um, oh well <laughs> don't don't feel time, don't but... feel
0: like you have to um <laughs> no, you know, shorten okay. it
1: <laughs> um, yeah i mean there's a few different components to that aren't there i think certainly again going back to you know putting into the dog the right nutritional building blocks is really important if we understand that, um, you know, all of our neurochemicals and neurotransmitters are actually produced by the bacteria in our gut. Mm. You know, we don't produce them ourselves. So if we're not going to put the right fuel into the dog, we're not going to get the right neurotransmitters produced and Mm -hmm. we're always going to be in a state of imbalance. So going back and respecting that is really important. So we must be feeding foods, you know, we must be feeding food high in tryptophan that's going to make your serotonin, but we also have to feed the gut bacteria and establish the right sort of microbiome. In order yep. for that to happen effectively. Yeah. So that needs prebiotic fibres, it needs all of the vitamins and minerals that are going to help a gut, not yep. necessarily just giving the drug that's going to raise serotonin. So I think yep. that's one thing. Yeah. Um, I think the importance of understanding that dogs need independence is really mm-hmm. important. I think the dogs need a, ro- a role and responsibility to play in their lives. And I think too often we give them the role and responsibility of being our emotional support and mm. that's not what they're equipped to deal with. Yeah. So They need strong leadership from their people, Mm -hmm. from their their owner, their their person. Um, Dogs do live in a pack environment with us, whether you want to call it a family or a dog pack, I don't care. But it's the same sort of pack family environment where everyone is in together. And they need somebody to rely on and to know that they've got this leadership role. And leadership in a family needs to be a democratic, elected leader not a dictator there's no point sitting there saying to the dog I'm the boss follow my rules because that's not security to a dog you need to just um display strong leadership skills and have your dog elect to follow you yeah yeah so security and stability and predictability in the home and outside the home are really really important Yeah, giving the dog the freedom and the ability to enjoy themselves but being separated from you and again, this is one of the simple things where I think chewing on a bone in the backyard yeah. raises serotonin and endorphin levels in the dog, but it doesn't rely on you being with them. Yeah. And so if that dog might have a genetic predisposition to be an anxious dog or a separation anxiety dog, just allowing them to chew on a bone outside in the backyard while you're inside makes them feel good without you being needed mm. and so can make them feel more independent. Yeah. And I think that's something that we forget about. We just keep dogs inside and with us all the time and expect them to, you know, adapt to our moods all the time, but it doesn't give them their independence. Yeah. Um, And so again, that's why I really love bones. That's
0: a really interesting approach. I hadn't heard that before, but again, I completely agree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And what about when they're coming in to see you, if, you know, if a dog Mm -hmm. is sort of prone to anxiety, do you um, have sort of certain protocols in place to help manage that or...
1: Um, Yeah, certainly, and I mean some of them are a bit, you know, upside down at the moment because we're um, in stage four lockdown and we're not allowing people to come into our clinic. So, um, you know, we, we then have a dog that's separated from its owner coming into the clinic for us to examine. And so it's really important that we just, respect that dog and respect their anxieties and just work really slowly with them
2: Mm.
1: we need to be predictable with them and we need to prove to them very very quickly that we're not going to hurt them and that we're not going to do anything scary so we need to the first thing I do when I go out to get the dog is to give them a treat yeah um, you know and to pat them in a way that you know conveys that I'm not going to hurt them and then I need to remove them from their owner which for some dogs is really challenging yeah Um. so we just need to have a really slow approach and not do anything to the dog behind closed doors that we wouldn't do with the owner present yeah um, so I think yeah, that's, that's really nice important and just go it. really slow we use a lot of treats and we use a lot of um, uh, ice blocks made out of bone broth oh, which okay you can, yeah dogs love them so we get you know one of our nurses gives them that while they're trying to lick that then we can take a little blood sample from them yeah and, or trim their nails or whatever it is that we're trying to do yeah so just teaming you know a nice um, experience while we're doing something that might be a little bit challenging for them yep.
0: That's a really good tip because I imagine that would take quite some time for them to devour, rather than a you know a small piece (laughs) of liver or something
1: really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) The benefit of bone broth is that we can use that for an animal that's in for an anaesthetic without it being you know a a meal to upset their their tummy. So if we've got an anxious dog that comes in and we're trying to place an IV catheter, then a bone broth ice block is really good. Yeah, Um, and as well as that, we use a lot of pre-medications with medication at home before they even come in. Um, just to try and get them to reduce their anxiety a bit, because the the veterinary setting is a challenging environment for most Mm, animals.
0: It is. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Oh, amazing. Gosh, I've loved talking to you today, Kelly. (laughs) We'll have to have you back one time because I feel like you're just a fountain of knowledge.
1: Um, (laughs) But I know we're sort of
0: running out of time. Was there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye?
1: Oh, I'm not sure. I think we've probably covered everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just would like to, I guess, just reiterate the importance. And um, I know that most of the listeners to this podcast are probably veterinarians, um, maybe nurses as well, and then also some pet owners. Um, But I think that, the, uh, you know, I'm a veterinary business owner as well as a veterinarian, and running a veterinary business is always challenging. But Mm. um, again, offering this approach has seen my business grow from, you know, opening the doors with no one on my books to being, you know, a four full-time equivalent veterinary business within mm. about six years. Yeah, So it's wow. been really, really fast. And yeah. the opportunities for growth, for business and for, um, what's the word I'm searching for here, you know, for, for the veterinarian feeling like they're doing a really good job yeah. is huge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so I would really love to see more vets adopt this approach or learn a bit more about this approach um, because there are so many more people out there that really want this approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's some, you know, some talk whether actually working in this environment, you know, in an integrative practice and and taking a a slower um, approach and having more time with your patients Mm. and not having that sort of stress rush, rush all the time, maybe it might actually benefit the mental well-being of a lot of vets out there because I know that that's an issue. Um, Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I know that there's some possible research that might be going on in that area to look at that, Um, but I, I definitely couldn't see that myself, that that could be the case.
1: Yeah, and I think if you're a vet and you're able to practice in an area that fits your philosophies about health care and your ethos, yeah. then you're going to feel more aligned with that business and you're going to thrive more in that environment than you if you're in a situation where you're following a a cookie-cutter approach.
0: Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Kelly. I'll let you go. Just before we go, um, I know your website's www.bentonsroadvet.com.au. Is there any other contact details that you wanted
1: to share? Yes, certainly. I mean, obviously our clinic is also on Facebook. I think we might also be on Instagram as well, but I'd just like again to remind any vets out there about the Natural Veterinary Practitioners Facebook group, um, as it is a really great collaborative space to learn more about it. Um, And as well, if there are any vets and nurses who feel that this approach fits with them and aligns with them, please get them to reach out to us because we're always looking for people to come and join our team. As okay. I said, you know, we can't meet demand as it is. Yeah. Um, so we always have room for growth of our business. So just drop us a line or come and visit us and see what you think because yeah. it fits a lot of people and, and people do tend to feel happy in our environment because they, you know, as I said, it fits with their beliefs.
0: Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a happy place to work. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, um, I'll make sure I put all... those um pieces of information in the show notes for everyone who's listening in to be able to to reach for easily
1: fantastic that's great thank you
0: great well thanks kelly and hopefully we'll get you back again soon and enjoy the rest of your day
1: yeah wonderful thank you very much sarah i will and you too
0: (laughs) thank you bye this was the pure animal podcast and i'm dr sarah howard if you enjoyed our chat with dr kelly halls today could you please jump onto itunes and give us a rating and review